Well, it's been one of the longest-running game shows in TV history. To tell the truth. How many of you have ever seen To Tell the Truth? Okay, this, this program got launched all the way back in the 1950s, and it has been running every decade since then. Uh, you know the simple format behind it. There is a panel of celebrities, and then three contestants come out, and they all claim to be the same person doing the same job or having the same experience. Uh, one of them is telling the truth. Two of them are liars. Two are imposters, and it's up to the panel to figure out who is who. I can remember this, uh, watching this program as a child, watching it on black and white TV. Some of you remember black and white TV. And uh, the three contestants would come out and they would say something like, I'm Joe Schmo, uh, I'm a Major League Baseball pitcher. And the next guy would say, no, I'm Joe Schmo, I'm a Major League Baseball pitcher. And the third person would say the same thing, or I'm Big Bird of Sesame Street, or I'm a, a harmonica player in a blues band, I'm a Hell's Angels, you know, whatever. And then the, the panel would go to work interviewing these three contestants. And when they were done asking their questions, they would vote who's telling the truth and who are the liars. And then the game show host, he would say those immortal words. He would say, would the real Joe Schmo please stand up? And this was spine-tingling entertainment back in the day. If you're under 40 and never seen a black and white TV, you'll just have to take my word for it. Okay, we were waiting to see who's the real Joe Schmo, and Joe Schmo would, would finally stand up. Well, we're, we're beginning a three-part series today, and, and today's sermon that introduces the topic, we're, we're going to be talking about true spirituality. Will, will the truly spiritual person please stand up? How do we know, you know, if we say, well, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christ follower, or I have a personal relationship with God. I have a personal relationship with God. Or I'm a, a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. How would we know if we're telling ourselves the truth? I mean, is it enough to just say the words that makes us real, the real deal? Well, the Bible says there's a litmus test for true spirituality. And the litmus test doesn't merely pop up in one passage of Scripture or even in one particular book of the Bible, it pops up again and again and again throughout the pages of Scripture. And the litmus test of, of true spirituality is actually the theme of the series that we begin today. The, the series is about caring for the poor and needy. It's about serving the most vulnerable members of our society. This is the litmus test of true spirituality. We're calling the series Hands and Feet. Because God wants us to get physically involved in meeting others' needs. He wants us to roll up our sleeves. He wants us to step out and do something. See, true spirituality is not merely saying the right things. It's doing the right things. Now, this is what we're going to learn about in today's scripture text. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah 58? Okay, Isaiah's about in the middle of your Old Testament. My guess is that uh, most of us don't do a lot of hanging out in Isaiah. So let me give you a little historical background to this book of the Bible. Okay, when, when, whenever you, you poke your head into a new book of the Bible, it's a good idea to get the historical context. If you've been around Christ's community for any length of time, you know that I teach this four-step Bible study method called COMA, C-O-M-A. And the C stands for, I just said it, context. Okay, you want to know who wrote this particular book we're about to look at? Who wrote Isaiah? And, and, and who were they writing to? And what was going on historically at the time? 
You say, where am I going to find all that information? Well, the simple answer to that question is buy yourself a study Bible at Resource. At any of our four campuses, get yourself a study Bible. I've got one on my phone as well. You could get a phone app study Bible. And the study Bible has a one or two page introduction to every book of the Bible. So this past week, knowing that I'd be speaking from Isaiah 58, I looked up the the two page introduction to find out what was happening when Isaiah wrote this particular book of the Bible. What's the historical context? Let me tell you what I found. Okay, Isaiah's writing around 700 BC. Around 700 BC. Now, At this point in time, the nation of Israel has been divided into two countries, north and south. It's been divided for a couple hundred years. The northern country retained the name Israel. But the people of Israel, northern Israel, got more and more wicked as time went by. Until finally God said, okay, that's enough. I've had enough of your sin, enough of your disobedience. I'm going to put an end to it. And God allowed the superpower of the day, Assyria, to come in and destroy northern Israel. Now, all of that happened about 20 years before Isaiah wrote Isaiah 58. And he's writing this not to the members of the northern country that had been destroyed. He's writing it to people in the south. The southern country of Israel was now known by the name Judah. And Isaiah's writing to them, what what do you think he has to say? He says, take a look at what happened north of us just 20 years ago. Okay, wake up and smell the coffee. This is what God does to disobedient people. He takes just so much, and then there's punishment that follows. So let's turn from our sins, hey? Let's let's put a stop to things like sexual immorality and dishonest business practices. Let's say no to other gods, priorities that we put in place of the one true God in our lives. Let's start caring for the poor and the needy. Now, interestingly, the people to whom Isaiah was writing, they didn't think of themselves as really bad sinners. In fact, just the opposite, they saw themselves as relatively spiritual people, religious people. Why? Well, because they attended worship services, like we're doing right here, a regular basis, and they engaged in spiritual disciplines. One of their favorites was fasting. You know, fasting means going without a meal or going uh, without a day's worth of meals so that you could spend time in prayer. And these guys did it right. When they fasted, they looked the part. I mean, they would put on tattered clothes. They would sit in a, a pile of ashes, sackcloth and ashes. We're fasting. We're spiritual. And God's word through Isaiah the prophet is, well, not really. See, the sort of spirituality you're engaged in, the sort of religiosity, fasting that you're taking part in, it's not really what I want from you. There's a different kind of fasting I want you to be part of. And that's where we pick up the story in Isaiah 58. If you're following in your Bible, we begin at verse 5. God asks them, is this the kind of fast I've chosen You know, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? Is that what you call a day acceptable to the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. You know, the answer is no. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Okay, this is what true fasting looks like, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? You notice what true spirituality looks like in these verses? You know, according to God, true spirituality is not the sort of fasting that involves skipping meals for a day while you sit around in sackcloth and ashes. Now, true spirituality is the sort of fasting that includes, look at the text, fighting injustice, setting people free from things that enslave them, like addictions, sharing food, sharing clothing with the, the poor, providing a home for those who don't have a roof over their heads. If this is what true spirituality looks like, if this is the litmus test, how are we doing? You know, I, I don't know about you, but I've got a long ways to go. In fact, as I, I've been preparing for this series, I've said to Sue, you know, I think I'm going to be uncomfortable throughout this series because this is an area where, you know, I've just got some growing to do. Now, the, the good news is God doesn't expect me to generate true spirituality on my own. True spirituality, caring for the poor and the needy, flows out of a heart that God has infused with certain qualities. See, God is the one who, who provides what I need to get involved in, in this incredibly important task of caring for those less fortunate than me. What are those qualities? We're going to take a look at them in Isaiah 58 today, three of them. The first one is grace. And if you haven't begun filling out your program yet, your outline, even if you don't take another lick of notes, at least jot down these three character qualities. This is what God wants to give us to make us truly spiritual people. Number one, grace. Say grace with me. Grace. Grace. Now, if you look at the text I read to you a moment ago in Isaiah 58, you won't find the word grace in the verses that I, I read, but the concept is very present, and, and it's linked to this notion of fasting. See, the people that Isaiah was addressing, they were proud of the fact that they practiced fasting. Now, in, in Old Testament times, you could fast whenever you wanted to. You could choose to go without a meal or to go without meals for a day and spend that time in prayer. But there was one day a year when everybody was required to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement, or as it's called in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. In fact, if you have Jewish friends, they may have told you just a few weeks ago that they were celebrating Yom Kippur, because this year, 2014, Yom Kippur happened on October 3rd, evening of October 3rd through the evening of October 4th. All sorts of traditional practices are engaged in on Yom Kippur. But here's what it looked like in Old Testament times. You could read about it for yourself in Leviticus chapter 16. In Old Testament times on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would take two goats to the temple. Now he would he would kill one of the goats, he would sacrifice it and take its blood and go into the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the temple, the holy of holies, little room. He was the only person in Israel, the high priest, who was allowed to go in there and he could only go into the most holy place one time a year. And it was to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. Hey, the Bible tells us, you've heard me say this many times, that the penalty of sin is what? 
is death. So when we disobey God, we are defying the giver of life. And so the penalty, we deserve death. In Old Testament times, God very graciously was willing to accept the death of an animal in place of the death of sinful people. And so that's what the high priest is up to. He's paying the penalty of their sins so that they might be forgiven. So that they might be forgiven. Now, Today, we don't have to do that anymore. We're not offering goats because God eventually sent his son, the supreme sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dying the death we deserve to die. And so if you will surrender your life to Jesus, if you'll say, Jesus, I want you to be the the savior, the king of my life, you could be forgiven. He purchased forgiveness, offers it to you as a gift that must be received. That's what the priest did with one of the goats. What happened to the other goat? Well, the other goat was called a scapegoat. You've heard that expression before. We use it in sports today to describe someone we blame for having lost the game. We might have that experience today. (laughs) Okay, let me tell you where the expression originated. Okay, in Old Testament times, the scapegoat was the second goat. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would lay his hands on its head. He would confess over that goat all the sins of the people. Must have been a really long prayer. Okay, he was transferring their guilt to the goat. And then when the prayer was over, the goat would be taken out into the wilderness and released. It it was sort of a visual aid. It was God's way of saying, this is how far I'm going to take your sins from you. I'm going to take them far, far, far away. Now, if you have a sort of demented way of thinking like I do, you know, I'm I'm asking, so what happens if the goat comes back, right? It's a bummer of a day. So sins are back in town. No. According to Jewish tradition, this isn't in the Bible, by the way, but according to Jewish tradition, that scapegoat was not only taken out of the wilderness, it was pushed off the edge of a cliff to make sure it would not come back. Okay, so this is the day of atonement. People's sins are paid for so that they could receive God's forgiveness, offered to them as a gracious gift. And the re- listen now, the reason they were supposed to fast on the day of atonement was to demonstrate a spirit of deep humility and and gratitude. Here's what their fasting was supposed to communicate to God. Oh God, we are undeserving sinners. I mean, there hasn't been a day in this past year when we haven't disobeyed you multiple times every day. If we had to pay for our own sins, it would mean death for every one of us. But you have graciously You have graciously provided us with a way out. You have accepted the death of a substitute so that we could receive the gift of your forgiveness. See, that's what fasting on the Day of Atonement was supposed to communicate. It was supposed to communicate gratitude for God's grace. God's grace. God's grace. Now, what does all this have to do with Isaiah 58, a message that we should care for the poor and needy? Friends, God is saying to us, if you have been a recipient, spiritually speaking, of my grace, if you have been a recipient of my undeserved favor, forgiveness, how could you not give grace, physically speaking, to the poor and needy? 
See, people who get grace, who truly get it, are supposed to give it. People who get grace, give grace. Have you been a recipient of God's grace? Then you should be able to identify with people who are poor and needy. You should be able to say, I was poor and needy at one point. I grew up in an affluent suburb. Never had a day of a physical need in, in my life. But before I surrendered to Christ, I was as poor and needy as any desperate poor person on the streets of Chicago that I've ever encountered. You know, I owed God a sin debt I couldn't pay unless I gave my life, died. And I was not only poor, let's take this analogy a step further. I was not only poor, I was an orphan. Now, truly, I grew up in a loving home, two parents who adored me. But spiritually speaking, my sins, according to Scripture, had cut me off from a relationship with a perfectly holy heavenly Father. And I was not only poor, I was not only an orphan, I was a prisoner. I was doing jail time. Not literally, but spiritually speaking, I was in bondage to my sins. I couldn't break free. I couldn't change those bad habits. And I was not only poor and an orphan and a prisoner, I was an immigrant, an illegal alien, if you would. I was on the outside looking in on God's kingdom, not a part of it. Then the day came when I received grace. When I surrendered my life to Christ, became a recipient of God's grace, my moral bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus took care of that. He paid the debt. He put his spiritual riches in my bank account. He took this orphan boy and he made me a son of the Most High God. He broke me out of my prison, started to set me free from sins that had entangled me. And he took this immigrant and he made me a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. All of that by grace. People, people who get grace ought to be able to give grace. You know, the, the more I ruminate on God's grace for me, the more grace I'm going to extend to those who are physically poor and needy. You know, I can no longer make excuses for my neglect of the poor. I can't say stuff like, well, you know, a lot of them got themselves in their own trouble. I mean, it was alcohol, it was out of wedlock births, it was this, it was... Because I got myself in my own trouble. And yet God graciously rescued me. And I can't look at them and say, well, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Because I couldn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. It took Jesus coming on a rescue mission to graciously save me. And I can't say, well, if I give them some of my resources, they're probably going to misuse it, misspend it, and never stop to thank me. Because I've received blessing upon blessing from a gracious God and have misused so many of those blessings, misspent them, and gone days without thanking him for how good he's been to me. People who get grace give grace. Larry Stewart, he got grace. He was introduced on Oprah some years ago as the secret Santa now, that immediately blew his cover of anonymity. 
The reason he was known as the Secret Santa back then, he was uh, giving away $100 bills for several weeks leading up to Christmas on the streets of Kansas City, his hometown. Now, let me give you a little backstory here. Uh, when Larry was born, he was born into poverty down in Mississippi. His uh, dad left home. His mom eventually gave uh, Larry away to grandparents, said, you raise him. You know, I can't afford to do that. And so he grew up with grandparents. He went to high school. When he got done with high school, got a job, lost that job, got another job, bounced from job to job to job, finally ended up on the streets of Mississippi. You know, poor, desperate, homeless, hungry. And so one, one day he walked into a little diner and he was thinking to himself, I will just order a meal, I'll eat the meal, and then I'll slip out before the owner notices that I've left without paying my bill. But when he was done with his meal, the owner of the diner handed him the bill and stood there staring at him, so Larry couldn't escape. So he decided a lie would have to do, and he said, you know, I lost my wallet. And the owner of the diner immediately sized him up, realized he's telling me a lie, and yet could see that Larry looked, he just looked destitute. So the owner came out from behind the counter, and he, he stooped down, and he pretended to pick something up off the ground, and he said, here, handed him a $20 bill. I think you dropped this. Larry took the $20 bill and he paid for his breakfast and even had some money left over. This was back in the day when he could put gas in the car with what was left. It was his first experience of grace. He'd become a recipient of grace and he never forgot that. Years later, he was working a full-time job now and putting money away in the bank and he stopped for lunch at a drive through hamburger joint. The waitress came out to get his order, and it was cold. It was a winter day, and she was dressed in a threadbare uh, coat. And he looked at her and, and remembered that he'd been a recipient of grace. And so when he paid for his meal, his hamburger, which was a couple of bucks, he threw in a $20 tip. And when he saw her face light up with a smile, he was hooked on grace. That, that was not the name of the waitress, by the way. There's... I mean, that was, a, that was an incredible experience. So he started giving $20 bills away every Christmas. Giving 20, when his income increased, it went to $100 bills, not only in Kansas City, but in other cities around the country. See, people who get grace give grace. So let me ask you, have you been a recipient of God's grace? Not, not only grace with a capital G, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've gotten the big grace. But what about all the smaller grace gifts you've received? Did you grow up in a loving home? How many of you grew up in a loving home? Really warm home. Have you ever considered giving family grace to some child who isn't having that experience? Maybe through one of our ministries at Christ Community Church. Maybe, maybe even by, by becoming a foster parent. How many of you had food on your table this week? Okay. Ever thought about giving a, a gift of food, grace, contribution to a local food pantry so that others can eat this season? Many of us grew up with a great education, maybe all the way through college, maybe post-college. Ever thought about offering your services as a tutor to somebody who needs education, grace? Education, grace. If you got Tuesday nights free, why don't you volunteer at Care Night 
so you can offer some addiction-free grace or grief-share grace or divorce-recovery grace to people who need it. Those who get grace, they want to give grace. Okay, that's where it begins. God gives us grace, and this, you know, this so fills us up. It overflows into the lives of those less fortunate. Second character quality God wants to give us is justice. Say justice with me. Justice. Go back to Isaiah 58. I read verses 5 through 7. I want to go back and park on verse 6. Second line of verse 6 says that if we have true spirituality, we will loose the chains of injustice. If you got your own Bible, and this is why I encourage you, bring your own Bible, mark it up, circle the word injustice. This is a really important Bible word. And in Scripture, in God's word, poverty is often associated with injustice. Think about that for a moment. Poverty is often associated with injustice. And so caring for the poor and needy is often described as doing justice. When we care for those less fortunate, we are doing justice. Now hold that thought in your mind for a moment because I want to ask you a question, rhetorical question. You don't have to call out an answer. But, but if, if you were asked to describe the root causes of poverty in our country today, what would you say? If I say, you know, why are people poor in our country? What are some of the reasons? Well, Tim Keller is a pastor. He's an author. He's written a book called Generous Justice. He's a Bible scholar. He says in his book, Generous Justice, he's, you know, if you are a political liberal, you'll probably attribute the main causes of poverty to big social structural things. You know, racial discrimination, economic deprivation, joblessness, and things beyond the control of an individual. If you are a political conservative, Keller writes, so you, you may identify the causes of poverty as you know, being more personal things. Okay, the breakup of families or bad habits, a lack of initiative. So which is it? Well, Keller decided to do a study of the Bible. What does God's word say are the root causes of poverty? And he discovered there are three big ones. Now listen to this. this is number one, oppression. Number two, calamity. Number three, personal moral failure. Now if you're a political conservative, and I am in many ways, take a look at that list. See, the first two have nothing to do with an individual's control of the situation. Oppression, calamity, things outside of an individual's control. Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, sees a fair amount of poverty. Listen to what he says about the children that he sees in this condition. He says, those children are in poverty, listen, largely because they were not born into a family like mine. That's the bottom line. There is an inequitable distribution, he continues, of both goods and opportunities in this world. Things are unfair. We've got to let that sink in. This world is, is an unjust place. Those who live in poverty, you know, those injustices can sometimes be overwhelming. 
when, when the staff of Christ Community Church gathered for prayer this past week on Tuesday, we get together on Tuesdays and Thursdays to pray together, everybody, get everybody together. And we were, for the first part of our time together on Tuesday, we were talking about uh, what an exciting time we'd had last weekend with all those baptisms. Uh, you know, 79 people getting baptized, and, and that's only one time out of three times a year that we do it. It was a party. If you missed it, it was a huge celebration of people declaring their allegiance to Jesus. So as we're talking about this with some excitement, uh, one of our staff members from our Blackberry Creek campus, he kind of sobered us all up by telling a tragic story. He said one of the guys who was scheduled to get baptized on Sunday down at Blackberry Creek learned on Saturday night that his niece, who lives in a, in a violent part of Chicago, had been killed, murdered in a drive-by shooting. So this guy got baptized on Sunday, but it was with a heart that was joy-filled over what Christ had done for him, but broken over what had just happened to his niece. Now you stop and think about that for a moment. What, what did this young woman do to deserve being murdered? You know, why, why was she stuck in a violent community like that? Who, who gave the gun to the thug that killed her? See, the world is an unfair place. A lot of injustice associated with poverty, which leads to what one psychiatric researcher has called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Dr. Martin Seligman a number of years back, he did an experiment with dogs. He took a dog, put it in a cage, strapped it down, closed the cage door, locked it, and then gave the dog just a little bit of a shock. Not a, not a bad one, but enough to make the dog yelp. And it tried to get free, and it found out it couldn't get free. It was strapped, strapped down. So it calmed down, and then he gave it another shock. And He did this two or three times. Each time it yelped, until about the fourth or fifth time, it stopped yelping, stopped struggling to get free. And once it stopped struggling to get free, he opened the cage door, unstrapped the dog, gave it another shock. What do you think the dog did? What do you think? Nothing. Just laid there. Learned helplessness. Can't do anything about the situation. So might as well not struggle. Many people who live in poverty have been strapped down by injustices, by violence, by poor schooling, by limited job opportunities, by racial prejudice. They live in a state of learned helplessness. And to, and to ask the question, why don't they just do something about their condition, fails to recognize the demoralizing impact that injustice has had on them. So what, what can we do to help them? Well, we can start by noticing the injustices. Now, let's not let our politics, let, let's not let our suburban lifestyle get in the way of seeing injustice. And then we could get involved in the community impact ministries of Christ Community Church where we have the opportunity of coming alongside of needy people. You know, people who like the, the dogs in Dr. Seligman's experiment, they're, they're strapped down. And God has called us to tear off the straps and lead them to freedom. In fact, go back to verse 6. I want you to note the four verbs in this verse. In fact, underline these in your Bible. Let me read the four verbs to you. Loose, untie, 
set free, break. If you're a truly spiritual person, God's word says, this is what you will do for those in poverty. You will loose them, untie them, set them free, break their bonds. Let me tell you a quick story about a Christ Community Church member who's doing this. Dee was a practicing lawyer until 2007. She got her law degree from John Marshall Law School, prestigious law school in, in Chicago, and she was involved in domestic relations and family law, but in 2007, she decided to leave her law practice and focus on her kids, raising her kids at home. Well, in the most recent edition of Bar Briefs, which is a magazine for lawyers, the October edition, Dee has an article, and in the article, she writes, I never missed the contention, anger, stress, anxiety, panic attacks, and busyness of that life. I didn't like the person I was when I practiced law, and I wanted to forget it all. However, what I was about to learn is that God can and will use the worst experiences of your life and turn them into something amazing. So what amazing thing happened to Dee? Well, we asked Dee to help us start a legal clinic at Christ Community Church for people who desperately need that sort of help, but they can't afford it. So we're working in partnership with a Christian organization called Administer Justice. And Dee got involved. She started recruiting attorneys and paralegals and prayer partners and interpreters. And we now have a once-a-month Saturday morning legal clinic providing counsel and hope to low-income individuals who couldn't get this on their own. Now, friends, isn't that a great response to injustice? And by the way, you don't have to be a legal, you don't have to have a legal background to volunteer in this ministry at our church. Um, Every person who comes, we give them a 45-minute interview with a, a lawyer or a paralegal. And afterwards, we ask them, this is volunteer, would you like an advocate? And an advocate is someone who will pray with them. You know, their problems are more than legal. They have spiritual problems, emotional problems, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of food problems, and so on. And so what the advocate does is prays for them and then hooks them up with resources, support groups, the local church, Christ Community Church. You could be an advocate. Lord, fill our hearts with justice. You know, we want to be people who loose, who untie, who set free, who break others from their poverty, don't we? Third quality God wants to give us, righteousness. Say that with me. Righteousness. I want to look at one last verse in Isaiah 58. We've read through verse 7, emphasizing our need to care for the poor. Verse 8 describes what will happen to our lives if we'll do this. This is how true spirituality gets rewarded. Let me read it to you. Okay, If you care for the poor, verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will there's our word. Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Now, there's a very important expression in verse 8 that I want to draw your attention to. Mentioned it just a moment ago. Your righteousness. See that in the middle of the verse? Your righteousness will go before you. What is meant by that expression, your righteousness? 
Bible scholars say two possible interpretations here. Uh, First, your righteousness may be a reference to God himself because God is known as the righteous one in Scripture. So if you'll, you'll care for the poor, your righteousness, God himself will go before you in your life. He'll he'll, he'll open the path for you. Another possible interpretation, though, is that your righteousness means your acts of goodness, kindness toward poor people, your compassion toward those who have great needs in their lives. Now, Job, you remember Job? Job used righteousness in this way. If you don't know the story of Job, Job got into deep trouble in his life. He was uh, suffering physically, physically, he lost family members, uh, he, he was depressed, and friends came to comfort him. They weren't really great friends, because what, what they said to Job is, we know what your problem is, you, you must be disobeying God in some area of your life, and he's punishing you. And Job responded, he retorted, he said, no, I think I'm an honorable man. He said, I'm leading a righteous life, and he describes for his buddies what sorts of activities he's been engaged in. So let me read it to you. This is Job chapter 29, verses 11 through 17. Listen to the definition of righteousness in this passage. Job says, Whoever heard me spoke well of me. Those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Can you imagine saying this about yourself? This was a righteous man demonstrated by concrete acts of kindness toward poor people. So you go back to Isaiah 58, verse 8. Your righteousness will go before you. Is this God, the righteous one, or is this your acts of kindness toward poor people? Which do you think? The answer is both. Now let me tell you something really cool about the Christian life. The minute you surrender your life to Christ, the minute you say to Jesus, I want you to be the Savior, the King of my life, he sends his Holy Spirit to come live on the inside. The third person of the Trinity, the righteous one, comes to live on the inside. And his job is to make you more and more and more like Jesus. What was Jesus like with respect to the poor? When Jesus walked our planet, how did he treat the poor? You know, on one occasion, he arrived at his hometown of Nazareth, and as the visiting rabbi, he was asked to read the scripture for the day in the synagogue. And they handed him the scroll, and he turned to a passage in Isaiah, a passage that we read read from during our time of worship today. He applied the passage to himself. He said, basically, Isaiah was talking about me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. See, Jesus is all about caring for the poor, for the needy, for the desperate. 
So when the righteous one comes to live on the inside of you and produce righteous actions, make you more and more like Jesus, you get a bigger and bigger heart for the poor. You start to pray, Jesus, I want to feel what you feel for desperate people. Jesus, I want to do for desperate people what you would do. It becomes a passion of your life. You can't help yourself. I want to tell you about a guy in closing who demonstrated that kind of righteousness. You know, righteousness is becoming more like Jesus. Righteousness is having Jesus' heart for the poor. And there's a guy named Mark Malnati who's a perfect example of this. Mark is uh, the CEO of Lou Malnati's Pizza. Just one more reason, the story I'm about to tell you for me to love Lou Malnati's Pizza. By the way, if you've never had it, the crumbled sausage is to die for. And if you want to be healthier, go with the spinach. It's great. I'm supposed to be gluten-free, and I still binge on lose every once in a while. But I, I, was reading, I was reading a book recently, and it mentioned an article in the Chicago Tribune newspaper called A Foot in the Kitchen Door. Now, as I tell you the story, I'm going to ask the worship team to join me on the platform and at our other campuses as well because we're going to sing a closing song of worship. We're going to bring our gifts, our offerings to the Lord in just a moment. But there was a reference to this article, A Foot in the Kitchen Door. It's a story of Pedro. Uh, years ago, Pedro grew up in Mexico. True story. When he got to be 18 years old, he emigrated to the United States. He moved to Chicago and he started looking for a job. And the, the newspaper article traces how difficult it is for an immigrant in our country. It's, it, there's racial discrimination. It's, it's hard to find work, even if you're willing to work hard. Well, he, he was eventually given a job by Mark Malnati at Lou's Pizza. He began as a busboy. Mark Malnati is a follower of Jesus Christ, which means that the righteous one has come to live on the inside which means that he's looking for outlets, ways to do righteous acts of kindness toward poor people like Jesus would do. So he recognizes in, in Pedro some leadership talent, and he gives him one responsibility after another until he works himself up the management chain and just recently became a corporate executive, Pedro, a corporate executive at Lou Malnati's Pizza. And it doesn't end there in terms of Mark Malnati's compassion for, for the poor. Another thing I learned from this newspaper article is that Lou Malnati's has a pizza restaurant in Lawndale. Now, I don't know if you know your Chicago suburbs, but this is a near western suburb to Chicago. It's a violent community. It's a run-down, impoverished community. And for two decades now, Malnati's restaurant has lost money every single year. Why would you keep a restaurant like that open? Because Mark Malnati feels like it's important to offer the young people of the community a place to work. And he gives them free English classes if they need to learn English. See, that's righteousness. That's true spirituality. That's a person in whom the righteous one has come to reside and is producing acts of righteousness. You know, my prayer is that throughout the course of this series, you will pray. As I've begun to pray for myself this week, I was praying, God, give me grace. God, give me justice. God, give me righteousness. See, until you infuse my heart with those things, my attempts to serve the poor will be feeble and ineffective.
and begrudging. If, if God begins to give you grace and justice and, and righteousness, righteousness, let me suggest a place you might want to begin. It's those shoe boxes. Operation Christmas Child. Don't let this opportunity pass. It's so simple. You know, you're going to pack a shoebox or two or three or five, and you're going to send them to kids around the world in desperate need. It will make their Christmas. It will be accompanied by a presentation of the gospel from someone belonging to Samaritan's Purse organization. So whether you do this in your home, you put some together, or you come on November 8th to one of our campuses, you sign up for the great day, the second Saturday of serving, 10,000 shoeboxes are going to be put together. And let me encourage you to make this a twofer. What I mean by that is don't, don't just come to put together shoeboxes for the poor. Make it an opportunity to, to reach out to neighbors and people at work, you know, friends of yours, extended family members. You know, the last time we did Feed My Starving Children and we packed a million meals, I invited neighbors to join me. Twenty neighbors came along to help me pack meals. So Sue and I, we're out there again saying, hey, come on November 8th, help us pack shoeboxes for desperate kids around the world. This is an easy invite. I'll warn you of something. Okay, this is an explicitly Christian sort of thing. This time around, Feed My Starving Children, a bit muted in its message, but not so with the shoeboxes. Franklin Graham, head of the organization, is son of evangelist Billy Graham. So he's outspoken about the fact that these boxes are going to be accompanied by a presentation of the gospel. Some of your neighbors and friends, they won't care for that. But I figure, you know, that's just my job to message it correctly to them, to say, you know, you might not care for the, the message that goes along with these, but you do care for children, don't you? Wouldn't you like to make a kid happy at Christmas time? So help me pack some shoeboxes. You could do it. You could start reaching out. You can secure a block of time, one of the shifts, at that second Saturday of serving Operation Christmas Child, just a small way to allow the grace, the justice, the righteousness of God to fill your heart.